Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today's show is brought to you by Mega Ton Coffee. Mega Ton Coffee is highly caffeinated, great tasting coffee, ideal for dedicated amateur runners like all of us who are limited on time but have huge goals. So for me, I love it because I can have one cup of coffee and get all the caffeine that I normally drink because I usually drink like two cups of coffee or so and I can do it all in one cup of coffee. It's cheaper that way and I don't have a bunch of coffee sloshing around in my stomach. So give this stuff a try. You can go to megatoncoffee.com. You can also follow them on Instagram where they like to highlight a number of the runners that they uh, that they uh, work with. And uh, I'll just tell you, I love this stuff. It's really, really good coffee. I'm a huge coffee drinker. I used to drink like, shoot, six to eight cups a day. I don't do that any longer, but it's not because I don't love coffee. I'm just trying to cut back a little bit. But this stuff is really, really tasty, and I can't recommend it highly enough. So today's episode is with Aaron Strout. Aaron is one of the best running journalists in America today. She writes for Runner's World. She writes for Outside Magazine, Outside Online, and basically anybody else who would really want to bring in a high-quality writer. She is absolutely fantastic, and she's somebody who I was eager to talk to because... Just the state of the professional running today, I think is fascinating. And I really wanted to talk to her specifically because she covers it and she has a bunch of strong opinions and some really good articles um, that I wanted to touch on. So in no particular order, we touched on uh, the the state of Americans women's running today uh, from a professional standpoint, how deep it is, its impact on uh, younger runners. We also talked about the men's side and a potential Mo Farah first Kipchoge um, marathon uh, you know, battle, which would be absolutely fantastic. I know a lot of people would be into that, uh, me included. I would definitely sign up for that any day of the week. We talk a lot about social media and its use within the professional running ranks, uh, the pressure maybe some, uh, some professionals feel to use it and how some use it to garner um, big followings, that, uh, you know, something that can be a jumping off point for, you know, other ways to earn money or just following uh, or followers, I should say. And just it's just uh, a new way for, for professional runners to kind of endear themselves to a potential audience. And obviously, there's a, that's a two-way street because it also allows them to communicate with their audience and with their followers and their fans as well. It, we spend a lot of time talking about an article that Aaron wrote about a month or so ago, about the state of women's coaching in the NCAA and elite running ranks. So, I think this was really, really instructive. This is a little bit of a departure from the normal interviews I do, where I talk to someone who's a, you know doing amazing things from a running standpoint, and certainly Aaron is a runner, but this time we talked a little bit about running in general, and I think you'll like it. I know I certainly love talking to Aaron, that's for sure. So, with that said, I hope you like this episode with Aaron Strout. Hello, Aaron, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I've been a fan of your work for a while, and you know, you, especially you coming off the Chicago Marathon, you got New York coming up. It's a, you know, I would imagine fall is always busy for you, so thank you for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Of course. I 
I appreciate you having me on. Well, I was, you know, like everybody who's in the run, running world, I was absolutely attuned to what was going on down in Chicago. And obviously, it wasn't the race that some people hoped they would have, um, you know, Gwen Jorgensen and Galen Rupp among them. But what an amazing race for Sarah Crouch, who was the first American woman across the line. Given what was going on with her having a tumor again taken out of her leg just a few weeks ago, how surprised were you that she ended up being the first woman across the line from an American perspective? Uh, you know, minus the the fact that she had surgery and had that tumor removed um, not too long ago, I was not shocked. Um, I was really happy for her. She has run Chicago, I think, every year that I've been there to cover it. And, um, you know, it's, it's always a tough American field. And I was really thrilled to see that she was able to put together a, a good race, especially given what she's been through in the past few weeks. Um, and so she knows that course really well. And so I think she really, um, just could put it together and, and have a good day for herself. And obviously it's hard to compare marathon to marathon because they all have different courses and the weather conditions are always different. How would you view the weather conditions in that race versus its effect on times for the elites? You know, it was interesting because I thought it would might have more of an effect than it actually did. Um, uh, all of the runners, actually, that came through the the press conferences, they were all, of course, asked that question. You know, how did how did the weather implicate your plans? And all of them said that it really didn't wasn't a factor, um, and that you know, especially for people like Mo and Galen who train in like Portland and London and you know, they're used to rain, they're used to humidity, they're used to wind. So I think it was kind of a non-factor for most of them. Right. And what I was thinking about was just the wet roads, considering, what was it, is it 37 90 degree turns at Chicago? Some, yeah, something, something like that. that. I just, like, even like the last, like, uh, the last video montage that shows Mo kind of taking the last turn into the finish line, he even looks like he slips and the corner, mm-hmm. I'm like, how? Like, I wonder how often that happened during the race for some of these folks. Yeah, that certainly is maybe one of the bigger factors, uh, as opposed to like the rain itself, um, is the slippery road conditions. Um, and especially, I've heard I've never run in them, but I've heard those Nike vapor flies aren't really great with traction, and so they were all wearing them. Um, so I don't know. We, that's one question that actually didn't pop up um, that maybe should have after the race is just sort of how the traction on those shoes implicated sort of how their races played out. Well, I would assume in the press conference, they would have said just fine. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but, Especially but after, at a Nike sponsored race. <laughs> right. Right. Maybe, maybe on, maybe on background, they would tell you something different, but I would think right. in the press conference, they'd be like, Oh, these are the best. Right. <laughs> No, and it's it's it really was amazing to see, obviously to see Mo Mo Farah get the two hundred five, and I feel like that, you know, just personally here in America, like I feel like the the American women marathoners kind of, you know, they certainly have the stage from from a popularity standpoint and what people are paying attention to, and I can't wait to talk to you about that. Just real quick on the men, it seems like after Berlin and then after Chicago, it really sets it up for like the competition of Mo versus Kipchoge at some point to see these two Titans of like the running world compete, Mm -hmm. you know, one-on-one at their best in a marathon. Is that kind of what the running community is looking forward to in the next year, year and a half as like a possible like big time showdown? Um, 
I think so. I, I would be excited to watch that myself as a fan of the sport. Um, I think, you know, Mo has a, a kind of a long way to go if, if, Kipchoge keeps on the track that he's on and can sort of maintain or sustain where he's at, uh, you know, at the elite level, what is it like, you know, three minutes or whatever it is. (laughs) I haven't done the math in my head, but um, yeah, I think it would certainly, it depends what course they're on. I think, Um, you know, can they find a place that sort of levels the playing field a little bit more than it already is, but you know, Mo's on the upswing at this point. So he's got room for improvement. I don't know that Kipchoge does. Um, So yeah, it'd be a very interesting matchup. And they've had so many battles on the track already. Yes, like it's, they have. It's fun going through YouTube to like, you know, see all of their battles at like basically at every distance, like like the 1500 meter, like all the way up. Yes, they have. They've certainly, you know, competed against each other enough. Um, and it would be great to be able to see just like that ultimate like marathon distance between the two of them and see what happens. Yeah, for sure. I know, I'm really excited about that. In addition... As I mentioned before, I, I like fond of saying this to, to some of my guests and just talking about running in general. It's like, all right, name the top five American women marathoners. And I feel like if you do that, you would actually just start naming like 10 people instead of five. Like, Yeah, just... I would be afraid to do that because I know that I would forget somebody important. <laughs> I know, right? I was actually right. I was trying to do it off the top of my head before this show and like, Again, like you just said, I got to like number nine and I'm like, oh no, Sarah Hall. How did I not put her right. earlier? You know, it's a, right. there's just so many people that you list and you don't even know where to cut it off. So yeah. looking at it now, besides, I guess I would say besides, if you, if they say they held the U.S. Olympic trials, you know, in 2019, you know, in, say four months from now, say they moved it up, they had it four months from now. Who would your money be on to to see who would qualify for that? Oh gosh, uh, <laughs> you're really putting me on the spot. So I can only pick like the top three. Only top three. It's hard. I can't. I don't even know how I'd answer it. So I'm, I'm interested to see what you would say. Okay. Uh, well, okay. Assuming nobody's retiring and everybody is healthy. Yes. Good caveats. I would put. Oh gosh, this is really hard. <laughs> Um, okay. I'm going to put Amy Craig on the team. I'm going to put Jordan Hesse on the team. And then I'm just going to be stuck. I think I'll go Shalene Flanagan. That is, I feel like this is so tough. It's almost like you're just better off like putting the names in the hat. Right. And pulling them out. Cause you're right. It, it is so tough. And it's funny that you put in the caveat of, of retirement. Now, when you said that, was that was that aimed at Shalane? Yeah, I think so. uh, yes, exactly at Shalane. Um, just because I don't know what she's going to do, um, you know, she's toyed with the idea for at least a year of retirement, um, but she hasn't pulled the plug yet. So, <laughs> uh, and she's still racing, obviously, very well. So, um, yeah, I don't know if she'll go to twenty twenty. Um, she's taking it one race at a time and seeing, you know, what inspires her and what motivates her to keep going or not. So we'll see. Right. And then the other names I had listed obviously were Des, Molly Huddle mm-hmm. would be you know, say in that list. 
Um, mm-hmm. And then kind of going down, you have you know, the Sarah Halls of the world, Sarah Crouch, mm-hmm. which was she capable of, Laura Thweet, um, Ali Kiefer, Sally Kipiego. What is Sarah mm-hmm. Sellers capable of doing? And the other one I had on there, and maybe it's just because I'm a Rhode Islander, so I'm mm-hmm. sometimes, is what would Emily Sisson be able to do? Maybe not yeah. four months from now, but a year and a half from now. Yeah, there's a lot of factors. Um, and yeah, I that third place, I said Shalane, but I, it could be Shalane, it could be Molly, or I, I would put Des on there too. So who knows? But yeah, with Emily, I am really, I think, along with a lot of other people, I'm very curious what she can do at the marathon. Yeah, it was interesting. So I used to work at Providence College, and I was talking to one of her coaches at one point. Um, just, you know, I, I was always going in there and bother them because I love talking about running and they would put up with it, thankfully. Um, and <laughs> one of the things they said was, you know, obviously in the college level, she just dominated. She was just much more talented and worked harder than a lot of people. And she had an unbelievable senior year. And they, but they always said that, like, they weren't going to rush her into it, but that her superpower was that she could maintain her top speed a lot longer than a lot of other people. And I was like, so you're saying that she, that her ultimate destination is the marathon they're like not going there yet but that's like that's her superpower is being able to do that and it like always stuck with me this conversation was like three years ago and Mm -hmm. it was like all right like these people are you know at the time they were training molly huddle as well and you know variety of other people kim smith and a whole bunch of others and it was like all right so what is she potentially capable of doing um and it's just so interesting because you have so many people here that could potentially qualify that you have to think also like some of these folks must look at that list and say, maybe I'm just better off trying to go for the 10 K. Yeah. I, you would have to think that some, some of these women are, I could see them going for both. I mean, that's an option too, is just kind of seeing what happens in the marathon. And then if it doesn't quite pan out, um, dropping back down to the 10 K and getting on the track and, and seeing if they can qualify that way. Um, also with the 5 K, same thing. I mean, I can see, and I think um, Shalane pointed this out in an interview earlier this week, that somebody like Gwen Jorgensen could have tremendous success at the 5K, 10K uh, distance. So that's maybe something she might consider. I have no idea. Um, but it's something that Shalane had actually brought up herself. Well, yeah. And that's, that's like a whole other question, right? Like, where does Gwen Jorgensen fit in here? Because it's such a wild card. It's such an unknown. It is. I think... Uh, Shalane kind of said it best, uh, putting on her coach's hat, um, earlier this week, uh, with the Bowerman track club, uh, that, you know, Gwen can certainly have a lot of success at the marathon. The question is, is, does she have the right amount of time to sort of grow into the event between now and 2020? And, you know, I think what we've seen, all these women that are having such great success right now in the marathon for the American side, it, they've been at this for years. I mean, many years. And that's the trick with the marathon is it's just like, it comes to you after you've put in a lot of time. Um, so it's not instantaneous. And I think, um, you know, maybe for going 2024, I don't know. Uh, but it seems like a very condensed time frame. I'm not taking anything away from her athletic ability, but I do think it takes a lot of attempts to learn how to really race the marathon. Yeah, and it also is hard when your goal is to win an Olympic gold because then the game of every four years becomes the obstacle. As opposed right. to like, hey, I want to win a world marathon major. It's like, well, right. 
then you have a lot of options here, right? right. You, have, you know, you have six, you have you know, six opportunities every year, potentially, obviously you're not going to run all six, but you have a lot of opportunities. Whereas the merit, whereas the Olympic, um, the Olympic goal is just, uh, you know, it's just such a hard one because there's so many factors that are outside of your control because right. of the time frame. Right. I yeah. would agree with that. So when you see this list of high profile American women runners, and that's just at the marathon level, we're not even talking about the Shelby Houlihan's of the world, right? And then, you know, the, our, our awesome um, steeplechasers as well, uh, Emma Coburn and Freireichs. So you see this huge list of extremely accomplished women runners. How do you think it's affecting, you know, the people like me, right? Your everyday runners who are just going out there um, trying to improve, but trying to stay connected to the running, just like the running elites at large. Do you see any trickle down effect to the everyday runners? I do just in my own anecdotal evidence, um, just, you know, friends of mine across the country, who have always been runners and maybe they've run marathons or other distances or just casually do it for fitness. Um, You know, the name recognition, the fact that they can name a steeplechaser in the U S is amazing to me because, you know, when I first started doing this, I don't think that would have happened. (laughs) I think I would have had to do a lot of education on, you know, this is what the steeplechase is and this is who runs it for the U S and this is why it's an exciting event to, to watch. Um, but now it, it seems as though these women have a lot more recognition, um, among, you know, recreational runners. And even like, you know, I use my mom as a test case because she's really not a runner. Um, but she does like to follow along with what I'm, whatever I'm writing about. And so she can even like rattle off a few names herself. Uh, not even somebody who's going to sit down and watch a track and field meet on NBC Gold or whatever it is. <laughs> she probably doesn't even know what NBC Gold is, but she can name like Emma Coburn. She can name, you know, Colleen Quigley. She can she knows, certainly knows who Shalane is and Molly Huddle and Des Linden. So I think it's really an exciting time. Absolutely. And I think it sets up a domino effect that you see in a lot of other sports. Once you get like to this tipping point of success, right? You see it like with South Korean women golfers, right? You've got this tipping point. All of a sudden, it was just this boom. You saw it with all in the Dominican Republic. You see it with boxing in Cuba. It's like you get to this certain level and then it just becomes a cycle in and of itself where it's just mm-hmm. like, all right, the success leads to more success, which leads to more success. As long as you're basically, as long as you don't do something stupid to get in the way of that momentum. And you wonder like, all right, if you say you look five to 10 years from now and you look at, all right, you have a whole new batch of say 25 to 28 year old runners who were in middle school and high school right now who say, Hey, yeah, I grew up on these 10 to 12 women. I loved following them. And that spurred me on to success. I feel like that's mm-hmm. almost inevitable at some point. I agree with that. And I think social media, of course, really helps a lot because now all of these runners are just way more exposed and way, way more accessible than they ever have been. And so, you know, when I was a middle school cross country runner, I had no idea that there was even professional running. I didn't know really who was good at it. I didn't pay much attention, but now kids are so tuned in and interested and they see those examples being set and that this is something like if you're good at this and you enjoy it, this is something you can pursue. 
Um, I think that's incredible. And, you know, even like you see right now, I saw this uh, tweet that went a little bit viral in the running community. It was a bunch of um, girls. They looked to be about middle school age and they had a pro runner dress up day and they um, all dressed as their favorite pro runners. I mean, that's incredible that they even know who these pro runners are and that they like can pick one that they want to dress up as at practice one day. I thought that was First of all, it was adorable. And second of all, it was just really exciting to see. Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought up the social media side because it's such a a great way for these runners to not only kind of engage with people just like, hey, this is what I'm doing from a training perspective, if they're open to it. But it's such a visual medium and running like lends itself to that in a lot of ways, especially if you're Mm -hmm. doing the Instagram, going the Instagram route, which is definitely like the social media du jour right now right Um, it's like it's it's such a good mix for someone who i guess is positively predisposed to that sort of sharing and community engagement like even now it's like kara goucher's following on social media is amazing even though you know for all intents and purposes like the prime of her running career is in the rearview mirror she's able to connect with so many people you know tangentially through her running but in other areas because of maybe her political stances or her advocacy for issues or mm-hmm. you know her her books which have had which her book has done really well it's like it's obviously all interconnected but i feel like for the people who engage in those mediums it really sets them up for not only short-term but long-term success not only through their own endeavors but like the legacy they'll have later on Right. I totally agree with that. And I think Kara is like a really great example of that. Um, She's built quite a community and she's doing, you know, she's doing camps and she's, um, you know, out promoting her book and doing signings. And she's just made herself really accessible to all kinds of different runners and even like outside of the running community. I mean, her new book um, has been doing really well. And I think it's, it's, it applies to people who don't run too, even though it's, you know, the beginning of it is, is really geared toward runners, but um, the rest of it, like you can apply it to anything really. And I think um, just broadening her community that way has been great for her. Now, do, do elite runners have this pressure on them either from their own internal or peer pressure or from sponsors to engage on the social media side, or is it different for kind of every, every, you know, grouping or for every athlete? Well, I think certainly sponsors now um, really demand that you have some sort of presence on social media because that's how they're getting their brand out there and you're you're agreeing to represent that brand. And so um, I do think that it's part of contracts now that you have a social media presence now how much you know brand to brand how much it's enforced or you know it's also good for the athlete too I mean when it comes down to it that's how you build a fan base these days so you can't just let your running speak for itself anymore um unfortunately uh for those who don't really like social media uh you know, there's a lot more to it than just running now to, uh, if you want to sustain your own personal brand, I hate that phrase, but, um, I do think that that's how you get a fan base and being able to be accessible that way is huge. Right. And it's almost like 
not having one isn't a negative, but by having one, you create this other positive. Right. right. It's like, all right, it's not that I dislike this other runner. It's just I've actually engaged in conversation with this runner. So right. They become you become more of a fan, not because of a negative, but because of an overwhelming positive. Right. And I think some some runners are better at it than others. You know, like I'm, I can't think of a specific example right now, but like in general, I think um, some of the elites who show a more human side of themselves um, and not just like, oh, I'm running four by one mile today at whatever pace is like, okay, great. But like, who are you? You know, tell me more about yourself. And those are the actual elites that I love to follow because you can just see that they're not just one dimensional. They're not just only interested in how fast they can run. They have a lot more going on in their lives. And I think that's, you know, those are the people that uh, tend to last longer uh, well past their, their competitive days. Yeah, and you said it really well. It's not about like following like a social media script. It's about, you know, showing people who you are. Like right? you have people who like like Des Linden, who's obviously very humorous and has this like dry, like sarcastic wit that really plays well, like in mm-hmm. Twitter and in different other areas. And you have someone like Ali Kiefer, who, you know, approaches social media kind of in a different way, especially on other issues, and they both, you know, garner so much attention for their efforts, but for completely different reasons. Right. I agree with that. Um, yeah, I love following Des just because I feel like I share a lot of her <laughs> her appreciation for sarcasm. Um, and so she's really funny to to uh, follow, especially on Twitter. I think every now and then she'll, she'll just post something that makes me literally laugh out loud. Um, so, yeah, I think they all go about it different ways, but... Um, but I am personally drawn more toward the people that can show more of their personality instead of their splits. Yeah, for sure. Right. Especially when you have, especially if they're a track athlete and they're going to be over in Europe for a long time, it's like, you're not going to have like physical interaction with mm-hmm. your, um, you know, with your fans, like say like a marathoner might, but you have like say Gwen Jorgensen running with, you know, a group of men who are finishing around the same time, you know, obviously like a, like a 235 marathoner for a man, obviously it's extreme, but there's a decent group of them. I interviewed a guy yesterday who actually ran with her for a few miles. He's mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's like, it's really cool to like, you look around, you're like, Hey, you know, there's right. Emily Sisson or like, Hey, there's Quinn Jorgensen. This is, this is really cool right now. Right. It's like you don't get to have that experience with a professional athlete very often. Like you can't just go on the court and like shoot baskets with like Elena Deladon. Right. For whatever reason, you know what I mean? Um, so it's like this very interesting thing where if you're a track athlete like Shelby Houlihan, like you're over in Europe competing most of the time. So mm-hmm. how do you how do you connect with fans if you're not going to actually see them in person? Yeah, I guess you eat a lot of French bread. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, she's been great with her social media for sure. Uh, she she and her her teammate Colleen Quigley with their little battle of French braids and French bread on Fridays really, um, I think garnered a lot of laughs and a lot of followers. So good for them. <laughs> for sure. And I listened to your podcast with Ali Feller, the Ali on the run show, mm-hmm. and it was really good. It was really interesting to hear you kind of 
talk about the writing side of things, um, how you at Runner's World, you're talking about, all right, we need to be prepared for every potential eventuality of this race, right? Like, have we thought of everything? Like, what if your example, like, what if Meb wins? And you're like, you actually brought that up in an email chain. They're like, everyone's like, nah, 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 he's not going to win. And everyone's <laughs> out wins, right? Right. So going into New York this year, what do you think are some potential, like, far-fetched eventualities that probably won't happen, but are things to keep an eye on, um, you know, a few weeks out? Oh, gosh, that's always a really hard question, <laughs> especially right now. You know, I think um, I talked about this a little bit with my colleagues last week, just sort of how they make these great, big, elite athlete field announcements for these marathons, like, months in advance. And, like, you look at these lists, and you're like, this is great. This is an awesome field. And then you get down to, like, race weekend, and, like, three people who are the biggest names have dropped out because they're injured. And it happens every year. So it's really hard to, like – I feel like we're even too far out from New York to be able to predict, like, or even think about – Um, the eventualities of what might happen. But I think, you know, our readers really love Shalane. And so, um, you know, I had a really great feeling just from my own, like, off-the-record reporting before New York last year and just being able to talk to her a lot last year um, before the race. Um, And I feel like I know Shalane well enough to, to sort of sense how she's feeling about a race. I had a tremendously good feeling about her last year. And so I was not, I was maybe one of the only people that wasn't like shocked when she took off with three miles to go. I was like, yeah, she's going to win this. Um, But I think with her, you know, now since she's always been hinting at retirement, you know, I'm always prepared when she has had a good race like that, that she's going to come in and be like, I'm done. And so like, we need to be prepared for that. Um, We need to have some, you know, stories ready to go. Like here was her career, you know, here are the highlights, you know, having their family members on speed dial and to get, you know, sort of the whole story instead of just like, Shalane came in the media room after winning New York City Marathon and decided to retire and that's it. Like you want more than that. You want to be able to like be prepared for situations like that. And I think we were always prepared for Meb to, to sort of come in and be like, I'm retiring. And thankfully he decided to do it in a more gradual manner and give a nice heads up to everyone that this was like the last. <laughs> so that was nice of him. Um, I always appreciate having a heads up, even if I can't do anything about it until, you know, they finally publicly announce it. Um, so you, you don't have the retirement stories already written. It's not like the New York times obituary that they write about right. like three years ahead of time and like they're, they're ready to go. Oh, well we have some things, but like there are some, you know, there are some aspects of that reporting that you won't want to do until it's, it's, you know, actually been announced. But um, yeah, I mean, just making sure that those things are done is one thing. Um, but also just, you know, the night before we sit down and we, you know, as reporters kind of look at the field, here's who's definitely lining up tomorrow. Here's what the weather looks like here. You know, I've heard so-and-so has had an injury or, you know, all those kinds of things. And you, you sort of try to play out what might happen in your head. And what I normally do the night before a big marathon is just kind of write background paragraphs on like all the competitors, I think, kind of have a shot of either winning or 
being on the podium so that that's ready to go. And it's not something I don't have to like look up what, you know, Mary Katani's PR is or whatever the case may be, but like all that stuff's already pre-written and ready to go if, if needed. So. Absolutely. One of the, I think the best part of the interview that you did with Allie for me at least was your description of how, when you bumped into Meb race weekend, the Boston Marathon, the one that he won, mm-hmm. that you could just, it was almost like Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, where, like, you just had this, like, instinctive gut reaction, like, he's about to do really well. Yeah. Right? Like, you just, like, just the way he carried himself, and, like, you obviously got to know him, so you had context, mm-hmm. but you just had this feeling. Can you describe exactly what that was, and if you've had it any other times? Because I just thought that was fascinating. I've had it a few other times. Um, that was the first, because that was pretty early on in my... um you know, career in running times in runner's world. So, uh, yeah, I, cause I had spent some time with him in mammoth. Um, actually the first feature I ever wrote for running times was that story I did on Meb when he was training in mammoth. Um, he, he was at that point, he was training for the New York city marathon and it was the year that it got canceled because of, uh, hurricane Sandy. Um, and so I, yeah, so it was Boston, and uh, yeah, I just kind of ran into him at the press event. I wasn't really doing any reporting on him. I think I was, if memory serves, I think I was actually covering the women that year. So I just was going over to say hello and see, you know, how things were going and whatever. And yeah, he just kind of lit up, and he was in really good spirits, and you know, didn't seem very stressed out. And I think that's always a sign to me. Like I've had this other times too. Shalane, I had ran into her the day before the New York city marathon. I was actually editing somebody else's story that morning. And so I was looking for a very quiet place somewhere in the hotel, not in my room. Uh, And so I went down sort of into the basement of the hotel and there were like, you know, chairs and stuff there and I was just sitting there editing a story and Shalane was just like wandering around down there on her own so she came over and we had a nice chat and I just got it it was the same feeling just kind of like she's loose she feel you know she's doesn't seem stressed out she seems like she's having like good feelings and positivity toward what was going to happen the next day and so I don't know I always feel like it's 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 kind of an indescribable intuition, I guess. But I, I also had a good feeling about Mo. Like, I he had been training here in Flagstaff, where I live, and I got the opportunity to see him out training. And he, and his time here, he's trained here many times before. But he's always been kind of inaccessible and not, um, not very social. Which that's why people come to altitude because they're putting their head down and they're doing a lot of work. But he just seemed looser. He was talking. He went and talked to the NAU cross-country teams. He came to our – he was on the track doing a workout right before my club team did was doing their workout. And he was super kind. After he was done with his workout, he was signing autographs and taking selfies. And, again, it's just that loose, happy, you know, sort of lighthearted feeling that – um it just, to me, it says somebody's feeling confident about their training. They're feeling happy about what they're doing. And I think that always bodes well in the race. 
I love that because also it begs another question of kind of what comes first. Is it the, the high quality training that leads to this laid back, almost laissez-faire, like personal approach, to like their interactions with other people? Or is it like the laid back approach that allows their training to reach a new level? It's such a good question. And I don't really know that I have an answer to it. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I do like it when my, my, I guess my philosophy is if you're having fun doing what you're doing, uh, it, it just always seems to pay off a little bit more than if you're being super serious and super controlling over everything. If you're just able to just kind of loosen that grip a little bit, I just always see that it leads to a little bit more success than if you're just stressed out. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. And also it's so relative too, right? It's like you can have bad workouts, but then all of a sudden, like, you know, I saw this stuff can be going on in your life that's negative and you'd be like, oh, screw the workouts. Like, I'm not right. going to worry about that. I'm going to worry about this other thing. Right. You know what I mean? So it's not as if like bad workouts will necessarily put you in a bad mindset. Obviously, when you're a pro, it might have more of a direct correlation to your overall mood since it's also your livelihood. Right. But I think a lot of people who take their running seriously, whether they're a pro or not, can understand that like the mindset, you know, can really come first before the can come first before the success and oftentimes will lead to it for the exact reason that you just mentioned. I agree. And all these athletes too are really mature in their careers. Um, they've been through the ringer already. They've tried a, a lot of different mindsets and attitudes toward what they're doing and maybe they land in a more comfortable place. Now you wrote an article for outside online um, a few weeks ago. Maybe it was, maybe it was a month, month or two ago. It was really, really good. It was about women coaches um, in the just, in running in general, you touched on high school, you touched on college, you talked about, you know, private and elite coaches as well. And just how, by and large, they're underrepresented compared to their male colleagues, especially in respect to the fact that, like we've already talked about, that women runners are doing exceptionally well uh, at this stage, um, basically at this at this time. What led you to go down, uh, kind of to do the research and to explore this topic in the first place? So uh, this was actually brought up in a previous roundtable discussion article that I had done for Outside Magazine. Um, and that roundtable was with Mary Wittenberg, Kara Goucher, and um, Lisa Rainsberger. And it was right before the Boston Marathon, right before Des won the Boston Marathon. And that was sort of the hook on that one was like kind of the state of U.S women's distance running. And from that conversation, we kind of went down a rabbit hole that I'm not even sure totally made it into the final article, but I think it was Mary Wittenberg. And well, I think all three of them have brought up the fact that there just aren't that many women in leadership positions in the sport. And then Lisa Rainsberger had said that her daughter, Katie, who's, you know, a really great NCAA runner at the moment um, purposely sought out in her recruiting process, a situation where she was going to be coached by a woman um, and that the choices actually weren't that great, you know, like, I mean, not great in the fact that there are quality women coaching in the NCAA, but that there weren't that many of them. 
Um, and so my editor sort of caught on to that and said, hey, why don't we look at that issue a little more deeply in the future? And maybe that's a different article. Um, and so I started looking into it. And there are a lot of studies, you know, out there about how many women are coaching in the NCAA. And then we started talking about the elite level. And while there are some really, really high quality uh, women coaching at the elite level, again, there just aren't that many of them. Um, and so we just started asking why. Um, and that's why that article came to fruition. And um, I would have loved to have spent actually even more time on it and talked to even more people for it. And so I think that's probably the tip of the iceberg, what, what was produced in that article. Um, and it's something that I'm not going to stop reporting on for sure, because I, I do think that track and field in general just doesn't have a lot of women in leadership positions, whether it's coaching or administration or, you know, that USATF or, you, you know, Mary Winberg is a great example of somebody who has really pioneered being at the top of the sport and in a leadership position and I think we need more Mary Wittenbergs out there. Yeah, absolutely. It was really fascinating, especially for me as someone who's, you know, I used to coach college basketball uh, for seven years and now I still work in a college athletic department. So just, to, you know, being on this side of it, it really was interesting, not only from a running perspective, but also on the other side of knowing male and female coaches and their own, you know, personal reasons for getting into or even leaving coaching. Um, and you dive into it too, but like how the the hours for a college coach are crazy. Yes, they're just nuts for every, every college coach. Every sport. yes, like it's just nuts. Um, it's a little bit easier for coaches in cross country, track, and soccer, basically sports that are like are daylight sports mm -hmm. because the you know it's like you have like some winter sports are tough because you have like games at like ten o'clock at night, which can be very prohibitive for family life. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you're still at work at eight o'clock in the morning and you're there till midnight and things like that. But, right. It, it is an exhausting or can be an exhausting job. And it seems like there's like, there's two categories there, right? You have like the NCAA coaches, depending on the level, right? One, two, three. Mm -hmm. But you also have like the, the private slash elite coaches. Right. And it seems like one way, I'm not going to dive into the whole article. You, you already wrote it. I don't need to regurgitate it. <laughs> you did. You, 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 you can communicate a lot better than I can. So I advise everyone to go read it and it will be in the show notes as well. But it seems like one way to kind of hack this is for women, as you mentioned before, Shalene, who was looking at getting into coaching as well, to just kind of like forget the cycle of trying to get hired in the NCAA, where maybe coaches don't leave. It could just be very hard to break in and just go right for the elites if they already were an elite runner. I mean, I think certainly that's one way of going about it. I also think it's... Um... It's very challenging because not everybody's in a situation like Shalane where she can go to Nike and say, this is what I want to do. Are you going to pay me to do it? Mm. Um, and so she's, she's in a great position in that, you know, kudos to her. She's put herself in that position. And I think that's a great example of somebody who, you know, obviously has gone for what she wants and she's worked hard to get there. Um, so, yeah, I think it's tough because I think, a lot of elite coaches are also NCAA coaches. And so I think that's, you know, part of the problem. I think more women need to get into NCAA coaching, uh, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, I think also more women 
who are NCAA athletes need to see more women coaches in the NCAA. So uh, I'm a big advocate for, for getting more women into those positions. And one part that you touched on near the end of the article, not for, you didn't spend a lot of time on it, but I thought it was a very interesting point was just the role or not the role, but the, the propensity for runners to have eating disorders in college. And first of all, there's a lot of eating disorders for just the general college population, especially for females mm-hmm. in college. You know, someone who's worked at colleges for the last 16 years, uh, oftentimes on the student activity side, I've been able to see that firsthand in terms of the stats and things like that. And obviously for women runners, you know, it's, it's, it's even higher um, in that women coaches could be potentially be even, I guess, more useful in serving their athletes in that regard. Could you just explain a little bit more on that topic or expand on that topic? Because it seems like not only is it useful to have more women in coaching positions because it's just equitable and they deserve it, but there's this other component, which is, you know, very different, but also potentially very important. Yeah, I think um, it's a difficult topic for a male coach to broach with female athletes. I think there's a lot of components to eating disorders that um, perhaps female coaches who have been through similar, similar things with either personally or with teammates or, um, just have an ability to talk about these topics a little more openly, um, and start a dialogue with their athletes in a preventative manner, um, that maybe, male coaches can't do. Um, and it's not to say that they, that male coaches have, you know, sorry, I'm kind of stumbling around on this one, but, um, (laughs) let me start over. (laughs) Well, it's, it's, it's a tough, it is a tough topic. It's it's a tough topic in a lot of ways. So it's, it's, you know, it's easy to stumble on it. I feel like, because it's not that men, obviously we're speaking in generalities here, right? There's some people, no matter their gender, we're going to be better at talking this, talking about this than right. others. And there's obviously certain men coaches. I've had a woman on this show who you know, dealt with a eating disorder as a college athlete, and her and her coach did a great job with her, and they were able to get through it. Um, with that said, you know, I think I think there's there is something to the fact that going through it firsthand or having some direct personal experience with either yourself or other people who've gone through it can be very useful, especially with something that's so complex as this stuff. I agree with that. And I think um, having more women on staff just also just changes the dialogue from the get-go. Like maybe perhaps before it's, you know, a full-blown problem. It's something that's already been talked about and it's already a topic that maybe they've made their athletes feel a little more comfortable coming to them and saying, hey, you know, I think I'm going down a wrong path or my teammates going down the wrong path. You know, we've talked about this before, so they feel a little bit more comfortable, you know, spotting the problems a little bit earlier, earlier on perhaps. And one thing that I would love to see maybe like another, another article on, because I think it's another topic that oftentimes doesn't get discussed. Not saying you have to do it, Aaron. I'm not going to put that on you, but it's, um, it's, you know, I feel like the 
that the theme of this topic about women's coaches in running often comes down to at least the elite level is like, how come more women aren't coaching other women? But I feel like oftentimes it doesn't get broached is, Hey, like what's stopping, you know, Galen Rupp from hiring a female coach, right? right? Like, or any other guy, right? Like if guys can coach women, certainly women can coach guys. There's nothing different there. Their physical ability is not indicative of their coaching ability same with every sport if you've ever seen the nba sideline you've probably seen a five foot nine 250 pound white guy coaching nba athletes it's not because he was an nba athlete so there's a lot to coaching that doesn't come from personal experience so when do you think we'll see an influx of women not only on the women's side of the elite um level but on the men's side as well well i think it's just a matter of getting these women into the pipeline honestly um you know, as we see more women taking on these roles, you'll see, I mean, they'll prove themselves as great coaches, whether they're coaching other women or they're coaching men too. I mean, in talking to Shalene, you know, I I did ask her that question, are you going to coach just the women or the men? And she said, you know, I have no problem coaching men. And I feel like I have just as much to offer them as I do the women. So um, I think it's just a matter of time before we see people like Galen Rupp, not Galen Rupp personally, because I think he's pretty tied to Alberto at this point. But uh, I do think uh, as we see more people like Shalene get into it and prove themselves as really worthy coaches that um, men will seek out their expertise. I would think so. And I would hope so, frankly, as someone who's been coached by men, mm-hmm. women, um, you know, again, I Lord knows I am not an elite athlete <laughs> as much as I wish I was. Um, but you're right. There, there literally is no difference there. And oftentimes the, the, the coaching comes down to the interpersonal relationships just as much as is designing a workout. Plan. Oh, right. And I think that's a huge, especially on the elite level, like you really need to, to have somebody there. I mean, a coach is basically guiding your professional career. And so you really have to make sure that you're all on the same page, whether it's male, male or female. Um, it's a really important decision you're making for yourself. Absolutely. Aaron, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great talking with you. All right. Have a great day. You too. Thank you again, Aaron, for coming on the show. This was just such a fun conversation. It is a, you know, it's fun to talk to someone who's so well versed in all things professional running and really get their uh, their opinion on just a wide variety of matters. I certainly have my opinions, but I'm coming at it from a point of naivete and just a fan. So it's nice to talk to somebody who's really ingratiated themselves in that community. Also, big shout out to Megaton Coffee for sponsoring this episode. They do great work, and if you like coffee, check them out. I tell you, you're not going to be sorry that you did. Go to megatoncoffee.com, buy a pound, and you're going to love it. And it'll last you longer than a normal pound of coffee because it's twice as caffeinated as a normal, uh, normal bag of coffee. So give that a shot. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for tagging me when you share the show. I love it. I love seeing the feedback, and I love seeing which episodes really resonate with you, the fans, because hopefully we can continue to do just that. So thank you so much and happy running.